by Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Welcome to episode 332, continuing on with our beginning of the uh, English woodsmith, woodcrafter, woodworking, um, master craftsmanship in wood. <coughs> so this episode is going to deal with early American, for, er, <laughs> early mahogany furniture, getting a bit ahead. So mahogany bins to, begins to come into general use as the fashionable wood for furniture shortly after 1725. The change in the designing of pieces, however, is not so marked as one would suppose. Considering that the early mahogany furniture is constructed almost entirely from solid lumber, whereas the latter walnut is nearly always veneered. It has been pointed out before that it is easy to place a false significance on any change by illustrating certain examples with undue prominence and ignoring others which conflict with these theories or statements. So there is no doubt that walnut was used. At the same time as other woods, long after mahogany had been generally accepted and was in wide demand. The new timber had many advantages over the old, which may or may not have been appreciated at that time. It is firmer in texture, harder in grain, yet just as easily worked. The reference here is to the mahogany from Cuba and Santo Domingo, which was the only timber imported during the early years of the 18th century. Comparatively, free from sap, takes a friction or other polish much more readily than walnut. And last but not least, the boards are much, much wider, thus obfuscating jointing and could be used in the solid without veneering, which meant a great savings of cost at the time. It may be supposed that a new wood, possessing these undeniable advantages, must have ousted all others very rapidly. Apart from the fact that the timber was heavily taxed at this time, the innate conversation of a trade would count for a great deal, especially as a new solid construction must have been involved in the scraping of veneer presses, calls, and screws as obsolete. Perhaps this is why the era of solid construction lasts for only a few years, and veneering is resumed again shortly after 1740. In the Midland districts of the UK, especially in Lancashire, even walnut had never become really popular, cherry being used in a considerable extent, and oak was at all times the favorite timber for carcass work, and even for finished surfaces, as much as the Lancaster oak dates from the early mahogany period. It is questionable that certain rapid changes do take place in furniture design between the years of 1725 and 1745. But one style does not replace or ever suppress the other, as one would suppose. Examples show that new features were incorporated with others prior to the date. And from this one is compelled to date any piece by the latest detail in which it exists. So much may be gathered from the examples that can be talked about in many private collections in conjunction with 
the following account of the new features as they appear. So you cannot worry or you cannot date by that latest feature that came out. You have to look at the overall composite, the overall mix, the overall melting pot of features. So some description of the stretching of chairs and tables has already been given in the earlier episodes. Together with the positional and other changes which these stretchers undergo from 1660 to 1700. In the walnut pieces shortly after the accession of Anne, these stretchers disappear entirely. At the, at the same period, the central splats of chairs become much broader, without piercing, and are usually veneered. Later on, this splat again is pierced in various patterns, and veneering is dispensed with altogether. The hoop back, where the top rail joins the side balusters, is one broken line. Changes to the separate and flattened cresting rail. The next development is the lavish use of the paper scroll, as being confined almost exclusively to chairs, suggested probably by the classical volute. <clears throat> the rolling of stiff paper is deliberately imitated. Although the minor arts of the 18th century not circumscribed by any other period, is the decoration of boxes, mirrors, and other small pieces with tightly rolled paper of various colors. The rolls being glued vertically to form patterns and afterwards etched with gold leaf. This fashion may have suggested the paper scrolling of furniture. In chairs, the elaborate period of the scrolling coincides with the plain vertical piercing of back splats. The arms of chairs and settees begin with a continuous line from back to seat to rail, but this fashion persists for only a few years. As the joining of arm and support presents difficulties to the chairmaker, in the succeeding manner, the arm is as distinct as the baluster and finish finishes in an eagle's head, in that a lion or any other animal, and in a scroll with or without leaf carving. The feet of cabriole legs change in much the same way, but in no definite order. The club, the pad, the ball and claw, the paw and ball, <clears throat> the scroll, and the leaf carved feet appearing at all periods from 1720 to 1750, and in no chronological manner. Seat rails of chairs are first rounded at the corners. The plan of the seat being something like a truncated pear. But after 1720, the front is bowed or serpentine in shape or straight. The usual plan form of the early mahogany chair seat is that of backward tapering straight-sided oblong. The piercing of central splats also follows a definite line, beginning with the vase, either solid or free cut, then the vertical piercing like the string of a harp. Afterwards, an intricate fretting, commencing with the use of a device similar to a figure eight, repeated several times in one design. And lastly, an elaborate interlacing in patterns, which may have been suggested by the intertwining of a flat tape. In the hands of the Chippendale School, this last device again develops in two ways in the piercing of a crude imitation of Gothic archings, 
and in the form of a knotted entwined ribbon, the quote, ribbon back of the director, of Chippendale's director. The carving of the knees of cabriole legs also undergoes progressive elaboration. Commencing with the smooth cabriole, which is the most difficult of all to make, as carving can hide a multitude of errors of design. We can find the scallop of Palmer's shell, then the acanthus, and finally the cabagon and leaf, which last carries us right into the Chippendale period. So one short-lived fashion, which comes in the years between 1730 and 1740, approximately is that of the lion and the satyr furniture. Rare in any event, but very exceptional in walnut. The lion's mask is generally used for the knees of cabriole legs, sometimes as a finish to arms, but the latter is very unusual. The lion's head on the knees is nearly always accompanied by the lion's paw for the feet, but the paw finish persists after the fashion for this lion furniture has departed. The reason is, in all probability, that the paw foot was cheaper and easier to carve than the claw and ball. With center and side tables, the applied fret is used for friezes, some years before Chippendale to date, which to fret is generally supporting to, to belong, but the design of those early frets is either that of the running scroll, some, sometimes described as a wave molding, or a copy of the well-known Grecian key pattern. The geometrical or the enclosed fret is later. An enclosed fret is one in which the pattern has to be drilled in places for the insertion of the scroll saw. The running fret is one which the saw may enter and leave the wood without holes. In this period from 1725 to 1745, the first mahogany years must be placed the fashion for gesso decoration. Ornament formed by a brush and a thick medium, generally a compound of gypsum, resin, and glue, partly modeled by the brush and afterwards recut by the carver's tool, and in France it's called reparu, recutting. Gesso, needing some disguising, as it masquerades as carving, is generally gilded. Referring to things which are absent as well as to others which are present, Inlay of any kind is highly exceptional during these mahogany years, and veneering is used sparingly. The influence of the architect becomes very noticeable in the furniture of this period, not only in the classical sections of moldings and in the use of pilasters with capitals and bases, but also in the designing of entire pieces. In the 15 years from 1725 onwards, we find cabinets and bookcases which suggest buildings in timber rather than examples of cabinet maker work and design. Nor are chairs free from this architectural suggestion also. The easy method of describing this rapid evolution in furniture fashions would be to select examples and illustrate them in chronological order. But to do this must convey the idea that there was an orderly progression to begin with without overlapping. I adopted this system in my 
uh, one of my podcasts, English Furniture of the 18th Century. And I've regretted it since. Yet in a work of, of the, the scope of these podcasts on this subject, I am unable to suggest any other method at this time. One point cannot be overemphasized, that is, that the latest detail in any piece establishes its date, no matter how early the other features may be. There is another caution to the student, which may be no more than hinted at here, that is, to remember that forgeries of this early mahogany furniture abound, especially in the pieces of the Lion period. And while these may be the work of skilled craftsmen, practiced deceivers would be the better description. Perhaps they are, as a rule, ignorantly designed, with a jumble of details which were never used at any one period, combined with others which were never used at all. Once the mistake is made of accepting these pieces as genuine examples of their time, we begin to erect false theories on inaccurate premises. These theories have the unhappy knack of persisting for many years. The faker is older than the expert, and that is why nearly all of the earlier books on English furniture are nearly worthless as far as accurate data is concerned. In this connection, the temptation is irresistible to point out that the untechnical expert in antique furniture is a contradiction in terms. This is not to say that a maker of furniture is, a, is necessarily an expert, but it is certain that from his ranks the experts of the future must be drawn. The knowledge of woods, the reference here is not to do differences between oak, walnut, mahogany, or other woods, but to the varieties of each, the countries of origin, the date when imported and such like mundane uh, wood of constructional details exist, of tools which were and which were not used at certain periods, the instantaneous appreciation of the kind of saw which has been used to cut a plank or a fret. All knowledge which is dispensable to the expert must be acquired in the workshop. It is assimilated there, subconsciously, in the daily routine, and it is not or it is possible in later years to state when and where particular information was gathered. To attempt to gain this knowledge outside the workshop is hopeless. It is akin to learning surgery outside the walls of the hospital and operating theater from the pages of a book, for instance, or attempting to pick up a language without either book or instructor. It is just in these minute points where the greatest gulf yawns between amateur and expert, which no flair can ever bridge. So it must be supposed that the brief description given in the, this podcast exhausts all the changes which English furniture undergoes in the years from 1720 to 1750. One meets with perfectly genuine examples quite frequently, which introduce new details or others in which the different features are all well known but combined in a novel way. In addition, several pieces are to be found which are new in purpose as well as in design. 
The walnut dining table is practically unknown and was probably never made. The walnut side table is very rare at the pedestal or flat top writing table if it had not been superseded by the bureau or the esquire before about 1735. In fact, the slant top bureau was still being made right up to the close of the 18th century, if not for a still later date. The sideboard, using the term in the modern sense as indicating a piece of furniture with cupboards or drawers, belongs neither to the walnut nor to the mahogany years. The berger chair, one with open padded arms and a solid upholstered back and seat, is essentially a mahogany piece, that is, belonging to the mahogany years. The same is to be said for the multiple top card table. The corner cupboard or cabinet is conspicuously rare in the walnut years, and the glazing and latticing of cabinet or bookcase doors is just as exceptional. The law of progress, as outlined by Herbert Spencer in his First Principles, a progression from the homogeneous to the heterogeneous, is true for English furniture as of every other change in the organic world. The piece of many functions gives way to the other with one or none. In this multiplication of types are found, occasional tables and small articles may only to fill or furnish a room, not to serve as any useful purpose. At the first thought, this increasing variety in furniture types might be held to indicate the growing wealth of the English people. In fact, the reason is much more basic and infinitely more grim. From the 15th century up to the middle of the 19th, the status of the English working class has steadily deteriorated. It has been computed that the, pro <coughs> that the produce which could have been bought out the reward of seven weeks of labor in circa 18, uh, 1450 could not have been purchased with 67 weeks pay in 1820. This fine 18th century furniture was the work of poorly paid craftsmen and labor was reckoned as of little account in computing the cost. The Earl of Mansfield does not concern himself with this price to be charged for the frames of the great pier glasses at Kenwood, but he is most precise and particular about the cost of the silver glass. Modern machinery has considerably lessened the prices of present-day reproductions, and it is difficult to comprehend the amount of labor which must have been necessary when every plank of board had to be sawn and planed by hand, and when machinery of any kind was something of the far distant future, the only labor-saving device being the treadle lathe. If there was one change more marked than any other since the close of the 18th century, it is the materials have gradually cheapened and the cost of labor has correspondingly increased. So it is difficult to imagine the days when the price of the actual labor must have been considered as something of little account, almost as an afterthought. Little wonder that so much fine furniture was made at this period, sufficient almost to refurbish modern America alone. Its costs must have been almost negligible. 
compared with that of the present day, even with modern machinery thrown in. Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Hope everyone enjoyed this. Thanks for listening.